It's not often fun to go through texts like this, but it's good. Um, I'm told that I don't like fun things, so it's good that I, that I don't, that I'm willing to go through this. Some days I actually wonder why I chose to go through the minor prophets, and I think that this is actually very important because it's important for us to see this. Given the text we have before us today, it's easy to imagine that what I told you last week was, has some, last time I was up before you, was, has some provisos, some things you shouldn't believe. Remember what I told you. I told you that we as believers have no reason to hide before God. There is no reason to hide your suffering or your sin before each other or before the Lord. I told you that lament is a good thing, that if you feel pain and suffering, it is okay to have that before the Lord and before your brothers and sisters. And I have not changed my mind. I still believe that that's what Joel 1 tells you. But you see, when you get to the end of that kind of an understanding that God cares about the way you suffer, God cares about how you feel, you come to a, a slight problem. But what do I do now with that? That's actually a really, really good question because there are a lot of answers in the world we have around us as to what you do with your suffering, with your problems, with your difficulties, with your sin, yes, and even with your doubts. Some would say you need to dwell in your suffering and in your doubts. There are entire segments of the Christian church, broadly speaking, calling themselves Christian, who would say that it's great to just dwell in your doubts, that doubts are a good thing, and you need to stay with those. As if our God is not a God of truth, as if the truth is something that you avoid. You just need to have those doubts, you know, because you're more spiritually secure if you understand that doubt is the center of the, of the Christian faith. Uh, that's wrong, just to let you know. You're not supposed to stay in doubt. That's not where you go. You can have doubt. That's important. It's important to remember that you have doubt. It's important to be clear and honest about your doubts. But you don't stop with doubts. You seek truth. Similarly, there are people in the world who would tell you that if you suffer, if you have things that have happened to you and people who do, have done things to you, you need to dwell in that. You need to simply stay there in that and, you know, hold it over those other people who have done horrible things to you so that they will know that they've done horrible things to you and that they'll change, Or uh, I guess. There are people who will even tell you that you need to make your central identity the ways that people have hurt you. And that's wrong. God does care deeply about your suffering, far more than I can, far more than even you can, far more than our church can really empathize with our suffering, but God cares more than that. And he gives us more than that. You see, it's, it's good to be able to say that we need to deal with, our, we, we have our problems and we have our sufferings. And 
It's great to say that, but that's not the good news. That's the first part. Truth is true. The way you feel is really the way you feel. You have no reason to hide from that. But you don't have any reason to hide that from God. And there is a chapter two to Joel. It isn't merely saying that God simply affirms you where you are. There's more to it than that. And that's where I'm going today. And I should start my timer so that I don't go way over time. You see, our problems are big. In this room of about 95 people, when I last looked at the registration list, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of different levels of suffering. Everybody here has something in their heart and in their mind that they're worried about, that they're thinking about. Even those of us who've had a pretty good week, there's still things weighing on us. And the weight of it would be too much for any one of us to, to bear, but God does bear it. God does see it. Our suffering can be massive. Our problems can be overwhelming. Our problems may not be big, as big as the problems we see in some others, but they're big to us, and we feel the weight of them. And friends, I've got good news for you. And this is the good news that I see in chapter 2 of Joel and honestly throughout the rest of the Bible. God does care about your suffering. He does care about your doubts and your disbeliefs and your sins and everything about that. But he cares more than to leave you in them. Friends, there is good news. There is a way out. The Lord God is your Father. If you simply have faith in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into his family and you are free to bring whoever you are, whatever you have, whatever you are experiencing to God. But this begins rather strangely. And if your Bibles are open to chapter two of Joel, and I hope they are, you can see this. Normally in the world, after I've told you about, you know, all the sufferings and all, how the, these are real and that they're real problems and stuff, most people would say that the right thing to do right now is to give you, put, your, put my arms around you and hug you and give you a there, 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 there. Um, you know that I'm not really good at that, which is really good because that's not what God does in chapter 2. <laughs> it's actually the same thing you'll see at the tail end of the book of Job. Have any of you read the book of Job? I had to read the book of Job this week. Job is a really, really weird book, and it's, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, really, especially the last couple of chapters, because you've had Job going through all his suffering and all his pain and all his problems, and he's saying to God, why, God, oh, why do you let me go through this? And God's answer is, oh, you're going to question me are you? Well, gird up your loins, brother, let's go. And that's essentially what you're seeing here. 
You see, God doesn't respond always with the there, there, the hug and things. He does to some, in some cases. But there is a more important response he has, the response you see in Joel, Joel chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you, just to give you the end result so that you don't lose, lose heart halfway through this, I am going somewhere good. The end point that I have here is it is always safe and good to bring everything you have and everything you are to God through Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going. But first and foremost, I have to tell you, that's true because first, God is good and he is just. You see, in Joel chapter 1, we remember there's this massive famine that's happening to the people of Israel, a massive famine that's been overwhelming and has destroyed the place around them, and they're feeling terrible. And Joel chapter 2 then says, essentially, you think this is bad. Wait until the day of the Lord comes. And just in case you're wondering about this, it is clearly the day of the Lord that he's talking about here. Look at Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Notice it's all caps, which means it's talking about uh, the God of gods, the one that you see in Exodus. We'll be talking about that in a moment. The I am, who I say I am, we'll be dealing with that really closely in a moment. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, and a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And in case you, he goes through then 10 verses of how powerful they are and how clear they are. And then he says in verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. So these are his army. This is the Lord acting. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And be careful with the word awesome there. It's not what we mean today, you know, awesome. It means it's something that fills you with actual awe. Awesome day of the Lord. You see, God has a settled opposition to evil. I know that's hard to believe in a world where there is a lot of evil, where we see evil happening every day. Depending on how you think about the election coming up, there will be a lot of evil happening this week. God has a settled opposition to evil. He has wrath against evil. Again, another word that people don't like to hear because we think of it in the way that we have wrath. Our wrath is when we get really mad at something and then, you know, we want to break something and hurt them and destroy it. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is different. God's wrath is his settled opposition to anything that destroys his good creation. And make no mistakes, brothers and sisters, you are his good creation, and he is horribly opposed to anything that can destroy you. And it's pretty clear how powerful he is against it. 
Just to give you a quick example, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march, each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. You see, this is an image that Joel is bringing to you about how clear, how unassailable God's opposition is to evil, and he will defeat it. There is evil in the world now, but make no mistakes, brothers and sisters, there will come a day when all evil will be eliminated. All of it. Every scrap. There will be nothing before the Lord God that isn't fully good. His people will be remade. Their evil will be destroyed. There is no way to avoid it. There is no way to stop it. There is no way to dissuade God from his destruction of evil. His justice will win. And that feels a little weird to us because we're kind of rich. I know you don't think it. I mean, you, you, you don't think that you're rich, but you really seriously are. I mean, almost none of us really worry about whether or not we're going to have food this week. Anybody really worry? If you are worried about food this week, I'll help you. Seriously, just talk to me after the service. But nobody's really worried about that because we live in Canada. Nobody's worried about the safety around us. We have police forces and militaries specifically designed to keep us safe. We have a legal system that is specifically designed to make sure that our property is protected. We're kind of rich. And so we don't really grasp the depth of evil and depravity that there is in the world because we're protected from a lot of it. Well... Unfortunately, we have evil in our hearts. We may think that we're protected from the outward things of it, but we have it. And God is opposed to evil. Now, this is going to be the really difficult part, and I'm hoping I'm threading the needle well, because I have to explain to you that there is a sense in which God opposes you. In all of us, in at least all of the people I know, and I'm sorry for those of you who know me, I'm actually, I, I am throwing you under the bus here. All of us have evil at some level in our hearts. We call it sin. And not like the way that, you know, you say, oh, that's a sin, char. I, I mean that kind of thing that you have in your heart that makes you want things that are going to destroy you and the people around you? I mean, you might not even think that that's what's happening, but that is what's happening. The best example you can come up with is uh, the actual addictions we see in the world, whether it's an addiction to sex or an addiction to alcohol or an addiction to drugs. We have an addiction to sin. For some reason, we are all capable and willing to seek after things that destroy us. 
And even though at our best times we know that they destroy us, we know that they're wrong, we still find ourselves the next day in our points of fear and anger or in our points of weakness or just being tired, we'll fall to our addiction to sin or evil. I will preach this sermon. I will talk to you about how God is going to save people. And, and, and as soon as I get out of this driveway, I'm sure somebody's going to cut me off on my way home. I've, I've got a long drive on the way home. I will be cut off and I will get mad. And I will sin in wrath, my wrath against what I perceive as evil. And that's destructive to me. And God is opposed to all evil. So the question is going to be, am I on the side of evil? Do I stand with evil? Because if I stand with evil, and I've just told you that evil will fall, that won't be good for me. (laughs) You see, God is not the kind of father who merely enables us. He isn't an enabler. Uh, I'll put this as clearly as I can. God loves you. He is a good father. He loves you well, but he is not your enabler. Sometimes you'll have things that you pray for and that you don't get, and you're all angry at God because you didn't get them. Do you know the reason that you didn't get them? They destroy you. And it might even be things that are good for other people. I mean, I I remember many, many years ago when I was a pretty inconsistent Christian praying that God would let me win the lottery so I would do great things for the Lord. Seriously, I did. I was a pretty messed up kid. But can you imagine what kind of person I would have grown into had I gotten that? I probably would have used those things for my own benefit. I would have used them to destroy myself and others. And I would have done it believing that I was doing good the whole time. I would have helped other people fall into the depths of uh, gambling addiction just for the sake of my benefit. That's all our sin. All of it. And God will not enable it because he loves you. God will not allow sin and evil to stand in our lives because he loves us. God is just. He is good, but he is not our enabler. Second of all, God is gracious, and Paul accented the verse when he got to it. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Not outward stuff, but real stuff in your heart. Return to your God for, and this is going to be a quote you're going to see, in a, uh, you, you probably remember from another part of Scripture. For, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The Lord God is ready even now even at this moment, to, be, to accept us. 
And it doesn't matter how far you've run, how much you've decided that you can't possibly return to Jesus. You're not powerful enough to overcome God. If God will be good to you, you haven't got the power to stop him. If he is willing to forgive you, the only thing between you and God's forgiveness right now is your desire to stand apart from God. God is gracious and merciful. And just in case you're tempted to think that this is just what Joel is saying, Joel's not coming up with this on his own head. This is something that's said in Exodus Chapter 34, you remember I told you, you know, the all caps thing about Lord means uh, tetragrammaton, Yahweh, it means I am what I am, I am that I am. That comes from a part of the Bible. It comes from Exodus, well, chapter 34, (laughs) interestingly enough, starting to read at verse 6. And Set the the scene here. Moses, who has been a fairly godly man for most of his life, has asked God, begged God, God, show me your glory, show me your holiness. And God says, okay, but be careful. It's a big deal. I'll cover you over in the cleft of the rock and I'll walk past you and I'll say who I am. And the Lord says this. This is who the Lord tells his people he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Doesn't that, that sounds inconsistent with what I just told you about God's uh, settled opposition to evil, but keep going but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The issue is pretty clear. God is good and punishes wrongdoing. He opposes evil. That's good. There are people who will tell you that the that the idea of a wrathful God, a God who's opposed to evil, is a terrible idea. It's a terrible thing. You know, you need a God that's just a loving God. I think those people really haven't seen true evil, especially the true evil that lives in their own hearts. If my God loves the way that I think of my neighbors sometimes, My God is either horrible or he's weak, one or the other. Because my heart is really, really wicked sometimes. I think some horrible things about people. And I'm pretty sure most of you do too. God is opposed to that. He has settled in his opposition to evil, but at the same time, he is gracious and merciful it's part of who he is. When he said that he was talking to the people of, uh, to, the, to Moses to say who he was, he didn't start with, I am opposed to evil. He started with, I am gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and holiness. 
God is good. He loves his people. He forgives people. But he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And we're all guilty. So what's the problem? How does this work together? God is good. That means that he is both just and merciful. How does this work together? Well... God, by his gracious mercy, has made it so that today is the day that we will do communion. We've sung the songs a bunch of times today about how Christ saves, about how we can trust him, how we can place our, our, tru- our trust in him, because there is a reason for that. There was a day a long time ago, about 2,000 years, when the only righteous man, the only righteous man, a man born outside of sin, a man who never sinned, who was tempted in every way, yet is without sin, who lived the life we should have lived. When faced with the cup of God's settled opposition to sin and evil. Though he prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's wrath. And I'm going to talk poetically for a second. I hope you get it. He decided, he accepted the punishment that God has against sin for the sake of people would have their faith in him. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Friends in Christ, there is no sin left. There is no wrath left. Friends, he drank the sin to the dregs and he said on that cross, to Palestine, it is finished. It's hard for me to actually get the depth of what's being said here. Brothers, sisters, your, your suffering is real. I know it. Your sin and your evil is also real. God knows it. And God knowing it, instead of visiting all of the wrath that he rightfully has against sin, put it not on us, but on the cross at Calvary took it upon himself. And the only requirement that we have is to trust him. Lord, and so what's the application for that? Knowing that God is both just and merciful. And knowing that God's justice and God's mercy find its unity and its full approval in the cross of Christ. 
what is the application that I have for you? It's simple, but unfortunately, because we as Christians have tended to garble it fairly regularly over the past, I'm going to have to go for a few minutes and explain it to you. I'm going to tell you that you can bring all of it to Jesus. And by the way, when I say all of it, I mean all of it. The things that you find horrible, you can bring to Jesus. The things that are causing you to be bowed down with grief right now, you can bring it to Jesus. The things that you think are pretty good, but are actually not, you can bring it to Jesus. Your loneliness, you can bring to Jesus. All of who you are, you can bring to Jesus because Jesus has said that he will not cast us aside that he has prepared a way for us, that he has paid for that way with his own blood. Friends, there is nothing keeping you away from Jesus today. There is nothing that keeps you from being reconciled to God today because God has made the way, because he is just and merciful. And that justice and mercy finds its unity in the cross of Christ. But be careful. Be careful, I'm not telling you that it's okay that you have sin. I'm not. Sin is not okay. I'm not telling you that this is fire insurance, that if you turn to Jesus, that it's going to mean that nothing changes in your life. If you truly turn to Jesus, you actually become different because you're going a different direction. Where once you were chasing after yourself, now you're chasing after Christ. That looks different. There's a reason that Jesus talked about it when he was telling people about following God that you need to count the cost because, yes, there are costs. The costs are totally worth it. Give up the things that are destroying you for the things that will make you whole. Give up the things that move you to death and destruction for the sake of what will bring you life and eternal life and eternal joy. That's a very easy transaction to accept if you believe it. But it will take all of that. If you come to Christ, make no mistake, He by His Holy Spirit will wage war against your deeds of the flesh. He will work to change you from one degree of glory to another. And sometimes that's not going to feel great. But it will always be worth it. And yes, I'm, I'm going to admit it, some people can find some limited joy in living in their own pain and suffering. Some people can find a limited joy in living in sin. Sin is, well, beneficial for a moment. The reason we all sin is because we all desire it. We all enjoy it. We sin because we like sinning. And if you come to Christ, your sin, will, your sin will slowly have more and more opposition from the Spirit of God dwelling within you. So you will change. You see, repenting is more than a decision, though it begins with a decision. It's more than divine fire insurance. It's bringing all of who you are to God and letting Him work with that. And make no mistake, He will work with that. 
Because he's a powerful God. As I said, his opposition to sin will not be dissuaded. It will not be stopped. If you come to Christ, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin will be slowly, inexorably destroyed. That's what happens. So, I'm going to tell you what you should do, what I beg of you to do. Come to faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Christ. Place your trust in what he has done for you. Place your trust in God's goodness and his mercy that's been said clearly here in the word of God, that's written all over the pages, that's ultimately written in red on the cross of Christ. Because the mercy has been purchased by the only one who could ever hope to stand between us as sinners and the wrath of a holy God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we now turn to the way that you've told us to remember your death and your resurrection, to preach your death and resurrection until you come again, I pray that you would open our eyes to the value of who you are. I pray that you would give us the willingness to put our faith and trust in you. Oh, and God, may the people here have heard a much better sermon than I gave. Because, Lord, you love them more than I can love them. You desire to see them strengthened more than I can. You want your children to be with you. So, Lord God, I pray that even now you would be working in your children's hearts to love you and to put their faith in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.